Good to see you. Uh, for the, so I don't get asked anymore, uh, where was I this morning? <laughs> uh, I was in, uh, in Tipton this morning, uh, not trying to escape being here, but it was good to be over there uh, and see the work that's going on in the uh, church there in Tipton. It's one of the, the close uh, FIC churches to us, and it was good to see them uh, over there. But that's where I was, so I don't need to be asked uh, anymore. Uh, yes, we're fine. I was just over there. Uh, we're going to... Uh, begin with uh, some uh, with the psalm, Psalm 67. Uh, we're going to sing uh, a song, May the Peoples Praise You, uh, and some of you will be aware that, that this, this is from Psalm 67. So I'm going to read the psalm, uh, and after I've read this psalm, we will stand together uh, and sing, May the Peoples Praise You. So Psalm 67 says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face shine on us, so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. This is God's word. Let's stand together and sing these words in song.
please uh, be seated. <laughs> well, we're going to pray, uh, but just before I pray, just a couple of things uh, to mention that I'm going to be praying for. Uh, first of all, um, Gerald Tanner is preaching uh, via Zoom tonight uh, in, uh, well, he's in Pelsall, preaching on Zoom to Pontefract, uh, and he's asked that we would pray uh, for him, so we'll do that. Uh, also, um, as I said, I went to Tipton uh, this morning, and uh, the work there is going well, uh, but they, they do need prayer. Uh, they recently had a baptism, which was uh, really exciting, uh, but uh, the work over there, as everywhere uh, in our country, needs to be uh, prayed for. So I'm going to pray for uh, Tim and Jane Ambrose, who are the pastor and wife there. Uh, and also, thinking about the nations praising God, uh, I'm also going to pray for Richard and Jen Margetts, uh, who we support working for the Wycliffe Bible Translators in Mali. Now, if you don't receive uh, their prayer updates, uh, I'd encourage you to receive them because they are really encouraging. Um, it always makes you want to jump on a plane and go and, and spend some time there with, with what they're doing. It's really exciting. Uh, translating the scriptures into the Bambara language in Mali. Uh, and there's a wonderful picture on this update of, of Jen uh, with their baby on her back teaching a Sunday school class uh, to all these children that are surrounding her. Uh, and the Sunday school class uh, is material that they're writing in a language that those children can understand. It's just a, a beautiful picture uh, of the work that's going on there. Uh, so if you don't receive that and you would like to receive that letter, uh, do let me know and I can arrange uh, for that to happen. Uh, but we're going to be praying uh, for them as well. So uh, let's, let's bow our heads uh, as we bring uh, these things before God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, your intention is to have a people that will praise you uh, from all different nations on the earth. We thank you that that work is ongoing. Uh, the work of building your church does not stop because of any pandemic. It does not stop uh, because of any enemy that we may face. You will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we thank you that we see evidences all over the world that you are doing that work, that people are being saved from their sins and given new life in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we see that going on in our own church where people are uh, coming to faith in Jesus. We thank you that we're seeing that in Tipton and we pray for the, the work that's going on there with Tim and Jane as they uh, uh, meet together on Sundays uh, and as uh, many people in that church are, are hesitant and, um, uh, and, and concerned about uh, COVID restrictions, uh, I pray that you'd help them uh, to be able to confidently uh, but carefully and sensitively meet together so that they can build one another up in the faith. We pray that they'd remain faithful to the gospel. We pray uh, that you would give them wisdom as they try and reach out into their community uh, and we just pray that people in Tipton uh, would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as they have seen over this year, uh, as they've seen uh, someone baptized. Uh, but we do also pray uh, a little bit further afield for the uh, place in Pontefract where Gerald is preaching. Uh, please help him as he preaches tonight to give your word powerfully and clearly, uh, helping the saints there to be built up in the faith, uh, even reaching people through Zoom who have not come to know Jesus Christ through the words that he is preaching. 
We pray that you would work powerfully uh, through him tonight. We also pray for the work that he's doing with Pastor Training International uh, in Uganda, uh, training pastors uh, to preach the gospel. We pray that you would bless that work, that the the training that the pastors receive uh, would be remembered by them, would be bearing fruit in the churches where they are pastoring. And we do pray for the Margets in Mali. We thank you so much uh, for the encouraging work that's going on there. We pray that you would give great wisdom uh, to the workers who are translating the Bible to know which books of the Bible to translate and when. Help them to translate accurately so that your word goes out clearly uh, to the people who speak the Bambara language, uh, a language which we know will one day be joined in singing your praises around the throne in heaven with all the other languages uh, from all the other peoples all over the world. We thank you for that wonderful vision we have in the scriptures of people from every tribe and tongue and nation praising your name. But we pray, Lord, that you would help Richard and Jen as they work there. We pray uh, for the new staff that they've appointed recently. Uh, We pray that they would settle in well to the work We pray that there would be a unity in the team. Uh, We pray as they um, continue to uh, create Sunday school materials that that also uh, would be a fruitful um, ministry. And we pray that as they teach that material, that children who speak Bambara would come to know Jesus Christ and be a generation of leaders in the future uh, for the churches in Mali. We thank you so much uh, for that great vision we have in the scriptures Uh, And we look forward to the day when we can join with people from every tribe and tongue and and language, uh, praising your name together. We also uh, just take time tonight, Lord, to pray uh, for Jenny Christopher in hospital. Uh, We pray that you would bring healing to her. We pray that uh, the doctors would be wise as they treat her. Uh, And we pray that she soon would be able to return home. Uh, We pray that you'd bring comfort and encouragement to her and to Pete Uh, during this difficult time. And for others who are sick and uh, um, in the hospital, some of whom uh, perhaps we don't all know about, we pray that you would also bring healing to those uh, in our number uh, who are unwell also. We thank you that we can bring these burdens to you, casting our cares upon you because we know that you care for us. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing just one song this time, so uh, you may sit down afterwards if you so wish. Uh, We're going to stand and pray a song uh, asking God to speak to us uh, through his word. Uh, Speak, O Lord. Let's stand as we sing together.
please take your seats and Gareth's now going to come and share from God's word. Good evening. Hope everyone's doing all right. Um, for those who don't know me, my name's Gareth. Um, I've been worshipping here at Pelsall with my wife, Esther, for a few years now. Um, so welcome if you're new today. I'm uh, super particular. <clears throat> Tonight, I'm going to share a text that will be quite familiar to many of us. It's from the book of John, and it's the passage about the vine and the branches from chapters 15, 1 to 17. But before we read and unpack these verses together, I want to take a bit of time to explore the context behind the verses so that we can better understand what the author is trying to tell us. The general consensus among scholars is that John is the last of the four Gospels to have been written. It's thought that he wrote the book around 97, oh, it's BC, it wasn't then by the way, it was AD, 97 (laughs) to 98 BC. (laughs) Always get your wife to check your work. John, unsurprisingly, is the author And for clarity, the John we're referring to here is not John the Baptist, but it's John, one of the 12 disciples, who is also known as the son of Zebedee and Salome. John is writing his gospel whilst living in exile in the Isle of Patmos. According to the 8th century historian Eusebius, John had been exiled for refusing to bow the knee and worship Emperor Domitian. I think that's his name. The purpose of John's gospel was to provide an account to convince people that Jesus is the divine Messiah. How do we know this? Well, John quite helpfully tells us in chapters 20, verses 30 to 31. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In order to get this message across, John uses two literary devices throughout the book. The first one of these is the seven signs that are used to point people towards the fact that Jesus is God. And the second device that John uses are the seven I am's, those statements that he says throughout the books, um, where Jesus statements that pronounce that um, Jesus is deity. Some scholars believe that John felt motivated to write his account in order to respond to some errors that were being taught in the early church at that time, especially from Gnostic, Docetic, and ascetic influences my teeth back in. One of these beliefs that was going around at the time was that Christ never really became flesh. This view came from the Decetic view that 
everything in the world was contaminated by sin and therefore essentially evil, which would have meant, of course, that Christ could never have become flesh because he would have been contaminated and therefore imperfect. Another view that some scholars believe John was addressing was the view that John the Baptist was the Messiah. In the book of Acts, we encounter believers in Ephesus who only knew John's baptism. That's Acts 18, 24 to 28. Paul came in contact with 12 of these individuals. And in Acts 19, 1 to 7, in, in Acts 19, 1 to 7, and John himself, who would have been around those circles at the time, would have been aware of these heresies firsthand. We, cannot be, we can't be sure um, whether or not that John was responding, um, using this account to respond to the heresies. But what we do know is that John's gospel was aimed to bring his readers to a faith in Jesus Christ and prove unequivocally that Jesus is the Son of God. So when we look at the structure of John, John's gospel can be compared to a game of football. Yeah, you're trying to struggle in there, aren't you? I can see you struggling. Um, John's gospel is a book of two halves, like football is a game of two halves. Tedious link. The first half covers chapters 1 to 11. And these focus on Jesus' ministry to the crowds. It's where we read about Jesus' signs and wonders, such as turning the water into wine, feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus walking on the water. And the majority of the first half takes place in Galilee and Judea. And in terms of timeline, what we're looking at, even though it's only half the book, we're talking about 99% of Jesus' ministry. It was the first three years. Well, it was just three years of his ministry. We see the turn towards chapter, uh, to the second half in chapters 11, 55. As Jesus sets off from Galilee and Judea, and makes his way towards Jerusalem, which is going to be the setting for the second half of the book. In the second half of John, there's a shift away from Jesus' ministry to the crowds, as John turns his attention towards Jesus' ministry to the twelve disciples. Where the first half takes place over a three-year period, period, the second half takes place during Jesus' last seven days. Today's reading sits in the middle of what scholars refer to as the farewell discourse. These chapters take place before the Last Supper, immediately before the Last Supper, and after the Last, after the last Supper. Jesus knows that his hour is imminent. Therefore, in the second half of the book, you're starting to get the sense that there is an urgency and a heightened importance to what he has to say as he seeks to prepare his disciples for the days, weeks, and months to come. So, in the farewell discourses, in chapters 13, we read about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Then, we read about Jesus predicting his imminent betrayal. He predicts the denial of Peter. And in chapter 14, Jesus comforts his disciples. He promises the Holy Spirit. Which brings us to chapter 15. And for this, I'm going to ask Esther if she can come and read to us the verses. 
John 15, 1 to 17, the vine and the branches. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Thanks, Esther. If this passage was set in the 21st century context, Jesus may well have referred to the allegory of the broadband router and the device or the electrical current and the circuit board. But Jesus was speaking in a first century world, so he uses a metaphor that they would have understood. Now initially I thought this was the only motivation for Jesus using a horticultural reference. But when I explored further, I realized that Jesus referred to the metaphor of the vine for a reason other than it effectively drove home his point. So let's remember the context. Jesus is speaking to his 11 disciples. By this time, Judas had left. As we know, the 11 disciples were Jewish. And to a Jewish audience, the claim, I am the vine, would have taken on a far greater meaning than what maybe you and I would initially think at face value. And I'll explain why. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel are regularly referred to as the vine. And if you take the time to read the references, you can see that the reference doesn't necessarily hold positive connotations. The vine was graciously planted by God from Egypt into Canaan. And God's vine was meant to honor God and be a blessing to all the nations around it. They were meant to practice justice and righteousness, but instead, 
they practiced oppression and produced unrighteousness. What was supposed to be fruitful and pleasing to God became rotten and offensive. As we know, this resulted in Israel and Judah being uprooted, that very evocative imagery, isn't it? Being uprooted and sent into exile. Israel to Assyria and Judah to Babylon. In the opening verse, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine. In effect, Jesus is saying that it's no longer Israel described in the Old Testament to be seen as God's vine planted in the world, but that there is a new Israel, there's a new kid in town. And new Israel is to be embodied and found in me. Not only does Jesus take this title of being the new Israel himself, but he says that he is the true vine. By adding this word, Jesus implies that the vine of the old covenant had become a counterfeit, an imperfect foreshadowing of what would be perfected in himself. Jesus is what God called Israel to be, but never became. Therefore, it's now in the person of Jesus where true life is to be found. It is no, long, it, yeah, it is no longer limited to a chosen nation, but it's available for all. However, if we're going to become, if we're going to belong to this new vine, connection is going to be imperative. So before I unpack how disciples can connect to this vine, we're introduced to a character and his job description. Jesus says, my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now the branches Jesus is referring to are his disciples And we can apply this to ourselves as followers of Jesus in today's context. Now, the imagery of a deity wielding a set of loppers ready to hack away indiscriminately can seem quite scary, can't it? But we shouldn't read the text in this way. A bit of a uh, window into my life before I came to the Midlands. Uh, When I was 16 and trying to figure out what to do with my life. I studied horticulture for two years, which is quite amazing when you look at my gardening skills. I didn't listen. Well, I listened a bit. I listened enough to give this point that I'm about to give. So I studied horticulture for two years. And while I was there, I learned early on that if you're going to prune a plant well, it takes great skill and care. It's a process. The first stage of pruning involves identifying and cutting what is known as the three Ds. My mum would be so impressed. Dead, diseased, and damaged wood. So you identify limbs that are no longer showing signs of life, limbs that are infected, and those that have become damaged. And there's a reason for doing this. When we do this, what we do is we protect the health of the plant We stop the spread of further disease, and it also creates space in the the plant for new and healthy limbs to grow and thrive. Is that right, Pete? Yeah, 
I've got your approval. That's all good. The next stage of pruning can be a bit harder for us to understand, though. And it can even seem to defy logic. And this is the painful process of pruning healthy tissue within the plant. Surely, if we are producing fruit in an area of our lives, shouldn't we just leave it be so that it can continue to bear fruit? You know, what have happened to the old adage, if it isn't broke, don't fix it? Yeah, so let's read the second, um, second part of verse 2. While every branch does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. The thing is, when you skillfully prune f- fruitful branches, you redirect the energy of the plant, which in turn increases the overall yield of the plant. In the short term, this can look quite frustrating because you have lovely fruitful limbs and you take them away. But in the long term, it makes sense. In his book, From Good to Great, the author Jim Collins says that for businesses, good can often be the enemy of great. He explains that we can so easily settle in the base camp of good when the harder but better option is to set off from base camp and keep going to the summit of great. Now, I know we're not businesses, but I think the principle still applies to our lives as well, especially in the context of the reading we've just read. How easy can it be for us to settle in the camp of good? We do the right things, we say the right things, we serve the right ministries, and we see fruit being produced. And we feel happy with what we see. But God is, the gardener, God, God is the gardener who cares deeply for our welfare. And he only ever wants the best for us. The depiction of the vine shows us that God is never finished with us. Whether we are setting out on our faith journey or living as a mature believer. That should surely raise some hope and all, you know, the room is quite varied in age. I'm not looking at anyone right now. In the short term, pruning can be painful and even hard to understand, but we can trust that the gardener only ever has our best interest in mind. Before we explore in more detail how we can grow as fruitful branches, I want to spend some time exploring what it means to be a dead branch. When we read a passage about dead branches being cut off from the vine and thrown into the fire, it's natural to be left with questions. What is John saying here? Is he saying that true believers can lose their salvation? And as we know, this is a complicated topic to cover. We know um, that some some believers are inclined to think that once a person has made a decision to follow Jesus, they are converted, and that there um, there is definitely biblical evidence to support this. We look at Acts 3 or uh, John 3, sorry, or Acts 16. Whereas others see conversion more according to their behavior and responses than according to what's going on in their very being. 
An example of this can be found in the parable of the sower. Although three of the four seeds initially produce a plant, it's only one seed planted in the good soil that initially goes on to produce a yield. In the context of this parable, conversion doesn't seem to be measured by a hasty decision, but by long-term faithfulness. In the book of 1 John 2.19, which is written by the same author of tonight's text, we read that they, and he's referring here to antichrists that had left the church, so they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Don Carson believes that this is John's view when referring to the dead branches in chapter 15. The branches that are dead and thrown into the fire were never really alive in the first place, even if at first glance they appeared to be, just like the plants in the sower. Now, before I move on, um, I'm aware that trying to understand whether or not you can lose your salvation is a hard question to wrestle with. It was not one that I wanted to wrestle with in the first talk that I ever did at this church. (laughs) But I didn't want to ignore that dead branches were referred to, so I just wanted to touch on that briefly. Don Carson, who is far more intelligent than me, states that whatever conclusion we come to, we need to do so in the humble recognition that as humans, our theology of conversion will always be limited and inadequate. So with this in mind, let's get back to explaining why Jesus is trying to stress to his disciples, uh, what Jesus is trying to stress to his disciples. I'm just going to have a quick drink. So if I was asked to summarize the most important lesson that Jesus can give, that Jesus gives to his disciples in John 15, I would have to say that it would be about the imperative of living in connection with him. In the 17 verses from tonight's passage, Jesus repeats the word remain 11 times. His repetition here is not an accident. It's done for a purpose, and that is to emphasize his disciples need to sit up and listen. If they're going to have any chance of living as Jesus' disciples, they are going to need to remain connected with him. They are getting sent out into a hostile world. Today, we're living in a world that understands and values the imperative of living in connection, albeit in a misguided way. The average person spends over two and a half hours on social media platforms every day. Fear of missing out, FOMO, suggests that we have, that we have a longing to be connected to what's going on around us. Recently, a well-known hotel chain conducted a survey with its customers. They wanted to find out what is the most important aspect when staying at one of their hotels? And this isn't a new question. They ask this question every 10 years to their customers just to keep a grasp on what is important. 
And the answers in the past have usually been pretty consistent. Usually the most important part of someone's stay has been comfort of the bed or uh, good food, cleanliness, friendliness of the staff, those types of answers. However, the last time that they did this survey, they got a different answer. For the first time, the most important aspect when staying at this well-known hotel chain was good internet connection. Connection's important. As followers of Jesus, we need to constantly, constantly remind ourselves that apart from him, we can do nothing. So how do we remain with him? How do we remain in him? If a plant's going to thrive, it'll need to have the right conditions. It'll need sunlight, healthy soil, the right temperatures, and the correct moisture levels. Like the plant, if we're to live as fruitful branches, there'll need to be certain conditions in place that allow us to remain connected to the vine and thrive. John 15 gives us some clues to this. This isn't an exhaustive list. This is just some of the things I've seen from this um, passage. And the first of these is obedience. In verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, I, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So why does obedience matter? Aren't we getting a bit legalistic when talking about obeying rules? Well, Jesus didn't see it this way. Obedience of the disciples is seen as evidence of their love of Jesus. In the previous chapter, Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey me. And a few verses later, chapter 14, verse 23, 24, Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Conversely, anyone who does not love me does not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. We don't obey solely because we are told to, although we do do this. Sometimes we don't feel like it, but we do it because we know it's right. But we obey primarily in response to God's love for us as an act of worship to express gratitude to God of what all the amazing things he's done for us. Therefore, we obediently submit ourselves. Romans 12.1 expresses it beautifully. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In verse 15, 14, we read, You are my friends if you do what I command. When we respond to his love with a life of obedience, our intimacy with Jesus grows and we become friends. So obedience. 
The second of these, the second way of connection, is to love one another. In verse 12, 14, in verses 12 to 14, Jesus says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. As with the command to obey, Jesus' command to love one another in chapter 15 is actually a repetition of what he said in chapter 13 earlier in this discourse. where he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I would argue that it's impossible to remain in Jesus when there is disunity and division amongst believers. It can be so easy to focus on our differences We live in such a tribal world where, you know, you're in that camp, I'm in that camp, we're in this camp. It's so easy to live in disunity. But when we do this, we disconnect from the vine. And slowly, we wither and lose life. Therefore, in order for connection to remain, we must repent for the times where we allow divisions to grow. However hard it is, we must forgive the offending party and we must seek reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. Finally, if we are to remain in him, we need lives of total dependence on him. As like we are dependent on Jesus for our salvation, We're dependent on Jesus as well for our sanctification in the process of becoming holy. Again, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus Jesus urges his disciples to live in complete dependence to him. And the good news is, Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. After healing the man on the Sabbath, Jesus is questioned by the authorities in, I think it's John, John 5, 19. And he responds to the Pharisees by saying, Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus only ever did what his father did. Jesus himself lived a life dependence I don't know about you but I look at Jesus' ministry and I just think there were times in his life where he so easily could have got distracted aren't there like one example of this in um, John 6 6, verses 15 after feeding the 5,000 the crowd tried to make Jesus king you can imagine them like, Jesus, Jesus, and they're throwing them up in the air, and you know, <laughs> they wanted to make him king. Now, for most of us, I think we'd have secretly enjoyed it. I know I would have secretly enjoyed that. The adoration from the crowd would have, crowd would have done wonders for our self esteem. Jesus, however, knew this was not part 
of the Father's plan. Therefore, he ran away from the crowd. Throughout his life, Jesus always understood his life source. And that was to be connected with his father. He depended on him and stuck to him, even when it was costly and unpopular. Now, I understand that to encourage dependence is not a popular thing, is it? We live in a world of independence that places such a high value on self-autonomy. To tell, to instruct people to live dependently is not going to go down well. Our world celebrates independence. Live your best life. Stand on your own two feet. Look after number one. Are all popular mantras of our culture. But are they values that Jesus encourages for his followers? When we grow more dependent on Jesus, we also realize that apart from him, we can do nothing. Dependency on Jesus shouldn't be seen as a weakness or a failing, but rather as a cause of celebration because it shows that we understand our limitations and a need for one greater than ourselves. The Apostle Paul understood this in um, Corinthians, in his letter to the church in Corinth. He said, um, I planted... I planted the seed, Apollos watered the seed, but it was God all along who's been making it grow. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but, it's only, but it is only God who makes it grow. As somebody whose job it is to encourage evangelism, I often see people get quite discouraged. They feel scared, they feel afraid. A massive thing of this is that they're doing it in their own strength. They think it's their job to plant, water, do the pruning, bring the growth, wrap up the flowers and bring them home. And before long, these people who are feeling discouraged, before long, these people become discouraged. And do you know what they do? They give up. It's only when we realize our need for total independence on Jesus and come to the acceptance that apart from him, we can do nothing, that the burden of striving can be lifted from our shoulders. So, to sum up, the three ways of connection that I've highlighted are very simple. Obedience, loving others, dependence on him. They're very simple, and I'm pretty sure you haven't heard anything new this evening. But they're very hard to do as well. So, as I come to a close, I just want to take a couple of minutes to think about what we've read. And this evening, I want to ask God to minister to us as we ask Lord, ask our God, Identify the ways that we maybe not as connected as we could be. Are there things in our lives causing disconnect? It may be an issue that we're struggling with. 
a person that we are finding really hard to forgive. It simply may be that we've lost our way a bit and uh, haven't been living as dependently as we could be. In the quietness of the next few moments, why not use this time just to, just to bring whatever it is to Jesus? Say sorry and to, to commit to reconnect. For others in the room who are maybe feeling like, I don't really feel like, I'm feeling quite connected actually right now. That's great, I'm, I'm good. Well, great, I'm glad for you. Um, but like we read in this, in this verse this evening, the good branches are also pruned, aren't they? So you don't get away with it. <laughs> so I just would like you to ask God to minister with you further. Ask the Lord to prune away and increase your fruitfulness to further his kingdom to the glory of God. They'll reveal that to you. So I'm, I'm just going to pray and um, I'm going to ask Kevin and Beth if they could come up with a song of response. Um, we're going to close with a song that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Lord, we pray that we can be people who are connected to you. Lord Jesus, help us to grow in health, in fruitfulness, in vigor. Identify the things that are getting in the way of that and, and minister to us, Lord. Amen.
Well, shall we close with the words of the grace together? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.